Hello and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I'm Amanda McCrossin and yes, you're right. If you're watching this, I am wearing my Eagles sweatshirt because it is just that kind of vibe tonight. It is Beaujolais and AMA live tonight because it's all things fall. It's all things comfy, cozy, and that is the vibe that Beaujolais gives. We are going to be talking all things, of course, Beaujolais, but of course, I will also be answering all of your hard-hitting, burning questions, not only around Beaujolais, but also around wine in general. I've aggregated a few questions from you guys, and I have uh, put them all together, and I'm going to answer them later. But before we get into that, I just want to take the time to say thank you for all of you who are watching this live. I love doing this. This is the second time I've done this, and it's a lot of fun. So if you enjoy watching these live, or if you're listening to this or watching this later and wish that you would have been here with us, I highly recommend going ahead and subscribing to our Instagram account and then also to our YouTube channel where all of this goes down so you can be notified and you can watch all these things. It's not quite the third Thursday in November, which is Beaujolais Nouveau Day, but we're getting really, really close. And so tonight I'm going to be talking about not only Cru Beaujolais, which is what's in my glass and should be in your glass if you were a member of the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast Wine Club, but we're also going to be talking about Beaujolais Nouveau, which is what comes out on the third Thursday of November. This is something that does not happen all year round, unlike Crew Beaujolais and the other Beaujolais we're going to talk about. This is something that is released in time for fall, in time for the holidays, and is a bit of a polarizing topic. It's something that I think some people really love and some people really hate. It was a wine that was like super popular in the 80s, along with like bad sweaters and eggnog, and like in a lot of ways is very nostalgic for Americans and still has a place in our households, just like sweaters and eggnog. So we're going to be talking about what those differences are. And before I get into that, we should talk about what is going on in the wine world. There are some things happening. Um, Number one, a sad moment, um, but a moment that I want to take time to reflect on, which is one of our longtime winemakers in Napa Valley has left the building. Mike Cellini has passed away at the age of 75. Mike was the longtime winemaker at Stony Hill Vineyard. 45 years was his entire tenure, and he was really responsible for making Stony Hill what it is today, which is a true legendary classic, a wine that has stood the test of time, a wine that broke ground in Napa Valley, because unlike a lot of the other wineries in Napa Valley, Stony Hill was predominantly white wine, Riesling, Chardonnay. Of course, they made a little red wine, but they really got popular because of what they were doing in the white department up on Spring Mountain. And I think having worked at Press for as long as I did and and gotten to know those wines, I have such a fondness for them. And I have such a fondness for Mike and what he did and the long lasting wines that he made. It's incredible. These, the ageability of these wines, we used to serve these all the way back until the, I know I've had them to the eighties. It might've been longer than that. I think Mike did a lot of really good things for the Valley. And uh, I know Stony Hill is continuing without him. I know he retired a few years ago before he passed away, but Mike, if you're out there somewhere, thank you for all that you did. And for those of you at home listening, raise a glass to Mike Cellini. He will be missed. All right. Our next topic, we are asking all about what happened with Dow Vineyards. 
a reported billion-dollar transaction. That's right, billion with a B happened in Napa Valley. Excuse me, in Paso Robles with the sale of Dow Vineyards to Treasury Wine Estates. This is an incredible, incredible amount of money. And in a very short amount of time, I was actually just at Dow not long ago in Paso. And what I didn't realize was how new they were. I think this is a really fascinating thing because Dow was founded in 2007, which means in 15 short years, the brothers were able to not only start a winery, but then also build incredible brand loyalty. I mean, Dow was a brand that is ubiquitous across the United States. It's a beloved brand, a la Silver Oak, Camus, Jordan. And they did it in a very short amount of time. And when you consider how long those other brands that I just mentioned have been around and the brand loyalty that they have, the short amount of time that Dow was able to do it is unbelievable. So I'm very happy for them. I think uh, you know they've done an incredible job thus far. Of course, that sale did include 400 acres of vineyards. It included their premium brands as well. And the brothers have to stay on because the, the number is actually $900 million, uh, with the opportunity to make another $100 million to make that around $1 billion. So I'll be very curious to see what happens with Dow. How is Treasury going to handle that? Treasury, for those of you who are like, what's Treasury? Treasury owns Penfolds out of Australia. It's probably the most famous brand that they own. But they also own a lot of other wineries in Napa, a few legendary ones like BV or Beaulieu Vineyards. Behringer is another big one. Some of the more popular (laughs) wines that you guys probably will know is 19 Crimes. That's a Treasury Wine Estates wine. So Dow Vineyards going to Treasury. We'll be very curious to see what happens. And uh, Stay tuned for more info on that. All right, you guys. This is the moment where I tell you that if you're not drinking with me right now, you're in trouble. You're in big trouble. You're grounded for the rest of the year. Santa Claus is not coming to town. I'm just kidding. But it probably means that you are not a member of the Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast Wine Club. And that is a crying shame because this shipment, as someone pointed out to me, is a little on the geeky side, but it also happens to be, I think, my favorite shipment yet. I have just drank all of these wines. I opened them, I think, a week ago. So I got to see them all together and how they kind of work with each other. I don't know. It's hard to like pick a favorite out of this lineup. Interestingly, if you don't have the, if you have the shipment and you have the Bordeaux Blanc, I think that's one to really look forward to. That was a sort of surprise hit for the family. But the wine that we are drinking tonight is the Chateau Tivan. Of course, it's the Beaujolais. And uh, this is going to be coming from Bruy, which is a crew in Beaujolais. So if you don't have that in your glass, go ahead and get in your glass. And we will see you in just one second. All right. We're talking Beaujolais. I hope you're excited. I'm excited. (laughs) I fell in love with Beaujolais back when I was a little baby sub in New York City. And it was a wine, I'll age myself, that like 12, 13 years ago was pretty inexpensive across the board. Like it was hard to spend more than like 30 bucks on a bottle of Cru Beaujolais. And today, that is not the case. Today, Cru Beaujolais has increased in price, as we threatened that it would. Some of them still remain really, really reasonably priced. And the one that we've got today is actually pretty reasonable. But you do see Cru Beaujolais upwards of like $80 to $100 a bottle, which is insane. I think if you had told us all 10 years ago that these would be that much money, we'd all think you're crazy. But let's get back to the heart of of the conversation, which is all things Beaujolais and what separates Cru Beaujolais from something like Beaujolais Nouveau. So 
I mentioned third Thursday in November. This is when it all goes down. And uh, Cru Beaujolais and Beaujolais Nouveau are very different wines. I just, I want to start there and say that they are very, very different wines. They do different things. They are made in different ways, though they are from the same region and made from the same grape. So on that, let's talk about Beaujolais. Beaujolais is a region in France. It is a region south of Burgundy. Though some people include it in Burgundy, so sometimes here it's in the south of Burgundy. There's some difference of opinion on there. But it basically stretches all the way from the Macon all the way down to Lyon and encompasses a very, very large amount of area. Uh, I think the, in total it's 14.5 thousand hectares. It's huge. The primary grape that you're going to find there is Gamay. This is a red varietal that you don't see so much outside of this region. This is a grape variety that occasionally you see a little in California, a little bit in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. And I think that's basically it. I have not really seen it other places. I love Gamay. I think it's a really delicious grape. But the thing with Gamay is it's not a super serious grape, and it's not necessarily intended to become a super serious grape, even in the Cru Beaujolais style that we're going to be talking about. The other thing that you need to know is that there are four different versions of Beaujolais that could be produced. You've got everything from Beaujolais Nouveau, then you've got Beaujolais, just regular Beaujolais, then Beaujolais Village, and then Cru Beaujolais, which is what I've got in my glass here. So Beaujolais Nouveau, what is it? Why do people feel so strongly about it? Well, Beaujolais Nouveau, as I mentioned, third Thursday in November, it comes out and it's a celebratory wine. It is a wine that's produced after harvest to celebrate the end of harvest and it's produced in a style that is meant for early consumption. It's not meant to age. It is meant to be fun and festive and doesn't, you know, take a lot of work to make. And speaking of not taking a lot of work to make, let's talk about how we make it because this is really what separates Beaujolais Nouveau from Cru Beaujolais. So Beaujolais Nouveau is made in a very different way. It is still made from the Gamay grape, but instead of making it in a traditional method like we would see with any other red wine, meaning the fermentation, they crush the grapes, they start fermentation in a tank or in a barrel, and then the yeast eats the sugar, the whole thing, right? We've talked about this before. Instead of that happening, they are going to take whole clusters of grapes, which is actually pretty normal, and they're going to put them in a tank and they're going to stack them, and they're going to close that tank, and they're going to put CO2 in that tank. And they're going to remove all of the oxygen because CO2 is going to displace the oxygen. This is where you have to put your sort of high school chemistry hat on. And what's going to happen is because that's become an anaerobic environment for the grapes, the grapes are going to start fermenting inside the actual berry. They're going to have an intercellular fermentation. And so what that's going to do is have that fermentation start inside and CO2 is going to be emitted inside because that's a byproduct of fermentation, right? That grape's going to explode and the fermentation is going to continue. But because of the way that this is fermented, it's going to take on a drastically different flavor profile. Though it is the same grape and in some cases from the same place as its counterparts that are labeled Beaujolais, Beaujolais Village, or Cru Beaujolais. Though they are made from the same grape and potentially from the same parts, it is this method of winemaking that makes it taste so dramatically different. And the resulting wine you're going to get is a wine that is very blueberry, bubblegum, banana. It's distinct. You pick up the glass, you smell it. It is distinct. It is not going to smell like anything else out there on the market. 
Carbonic maceration, that is what this process is called. It's called carbonic maceration. And if you hear that, it should indicate to you, whether it be Beaujolais Nouveau or another wine, that this wine is going to be fun and fruity and lively because that is the result of what you get from carbonic maceration. It's a really lively wine that's meant to be consumed early. After that fermentation happens, it completes, they bottle it up, and then legally it cannot be released in France until 12.01 a.m. on Beaujolais Nouveau Day. Now when that happens, there's a big party, there's a celebration, a lot of cafes and restaurants all do big end of harvest Beaujolais Nouveau Day celebrations, and sometimes you see them here in the United States as well. So if you're out and about and you see that like your favorite wine bar is doing Beaujolais Nouveau Day, celebrate, raise a glass. You don't have to drink the George Buff that's made Beaujolais Nouveau so, so famous. You don't have to drink that. There's a lot of different ways you can drink Nouveau. And in fact, I was just down in the Santa Maria Valley at a winery called Presqu'ile, and they make a really delicious Nouveau. Now, I'm not knocking Beaujolais Nouveau, but it's a style, right? And it's not for everyone. It's not something that I want to drink really more than a glass of, but I get fun, fun and festive and I get excited about it. So if you're out in the stores and you see it, it's on the end caps, Grab a bottle, try it. I love to pull a cork every year and just see what's going on. But then after you're done, be done with it. It's not going to last. It's not going to last in your fridge once it's open. It's not going to last in your wine cellar, even if it's closed. It's a wine that is intended to be drunk in the first few months of its life. So be done with it, and that's it. So that's Beaujolais Nouveau. Now, in our glass tonight is something wildly different. Well, I guess it's not that different, because as I said, same grape, same region, different winemaking style. What you need to know about Cru Beaujolais, which is in my glass here, is that this is from a very specific crew. And if you're looking at your bottle that you have at home, you'll see right here, it says Bruy, B-R-O-U-I-L-L-Y. And this is one of the 10 crews that exist within Beaujolais. And I'm going to pull up a map here so you guys can kind of see what's happening. And you see at the very top of the map in Beaujolais, you'll see all of those 10 crews here. You've got Saint-Amour, Juliana, Chena, Moulin Avant, Fleury, Shroub, Morgon, Rengi, Cote de Bruy, and then of course down in these greener parts you see Beaujolais Village and Beaujolais, right? So now that you kind of have those all memorized, right? Everybody memorize the 10 crews of Beaujolais. You got that? Okay, now you know what to look for in the store. So just like any other European labeled wine. You're not going to see Gamay on here. You're also not going to see Cru on here. This is just a nickname for the wine that we've sort of come up with. You're not going to see Cru Beaujolais on here, but you are going to see the actual Cru, which in this case is coming from Brie. Now, this wine in particular, this is Chateau Sivan, and this is one of the best producers in the region. This is actually one of the more old school producers. It dates back all the way to the 15th century. They've been producing wines for as long as pretty much any Beaujolais resident can remember. And I do want to point out that this is from a slightly cooler vintage. And if you are struggling to figure out what that means, I highly recommend you go back to our previous episode that we just did with Clive Pershaw from Decanter, all on vintage notes and harvest reports. We talk about what that all means, but go listen to that another time. I'll tell you right now, cooler vintage a little more acidity, less ripeness, but you're still going to, it's warm in the Beaujolais region. So you're still going to get really nice ripeness on the nose of this wine. Cause it's, oh my gosh, I've been talking for 15 minutes. I haven't had any wine yet. This is a crying shame. I'm supposed to be hanging out with you guys, uh, on the nose. I think you should still get a little of that like bubble gum thing that I'm talking about, right? You still get a little bit of that blueberry. It's very fruity. It's very delicious smelling. 
it smells like juice. I mean, it really just smells like, you know, like you opened like something really like pomegranate juice or something. And that's really what Beaujolais is all about. Now, I will say in different categories, this wine can get very, very serious, right? This is a wine that I think can be paired with a lot of foods. It's not necessarily wine that can or should be aged, even at Cru Beaujolais status. But the deal with Cru Beaujolais is that winemakers decided that they did not, well, have always decided that they didn't want to make wine in that nouveau style. And so instead of making it in the nouveau style, they are making this wine in the traditional method, in the way that you would see most other red wines produced, your fermentation happening as it always does. And so you're getting, you know, a wine that is made from a gamay grape, but made like you might see a Pinot Noir be made, right? On the palate, it's really dark and brambly, right? But you should feel that there's a really light fruitiness to this. There is a lift to this, a freshness to this wine. And I just took this out of the fridge because what I, what do I always recommend? 20 minutes out of the fridge before you're going to serve it. I took this out of the fridge 20 minutes before this podcast started and it's at perfect, perfect temperature. You want a slight chill on this wine. Beaujolais loves a little chill. I will also add that this wine has been open since Monday and it's Wednesday. So it's been open two nights because I could not, well, I had to, I had to record some videos with it, but I could not not drink it. So I've actually been drinking this over the course of a couple different nights. I'm going to start answering your questions and continuing to drink this wine because that is kind of what Beaujolais is all about. This is a good hangout wine. This is a wine, as I mentioned, that we loved as Psalms because it was a wine that had incredible value, but it was also a wine that was super, super food friendly and easy to drink. You don't have to have food with this wine, but if you want to have food with this wine, chicken, turkey, anything on the Thanksgiving day table, this is your perfect Thanksgiving wine. I think most Psalms, if you ask them like, what do you drink on Thanksgiving? They're probably going to respond with some version of Beaujolais, right? Beaujolais is delicious at Thanksgiving. But I will say I did have this tonight with a bowl of pho and it was delicious. So beef pho was amazing with this. All right, let me answer some questions while I'm sipping on this. We can go back to Beaujolais in a second. And my first question, I love this question, but I hate this question at the same time. I love wine, but how do you survive not getting a wine hangover or fog the next day? So there's a couple ways to approach this question. I think if you're tasting as much as I am and you're in the business, one of the things you have to do is spit. You've got to get yourself either a little, a little cup or a little spittoon. And if you're tasting wine, that's what you should be doing. You should be doing this at the wineries. If you're learning about wine, you really do have to spit. But it all comes down to moderation, always drinking in moderation. Not getting a hangover just involves not getting overly dehydrated. So there is no trick to it other than making sure that if you are drinking, you are drinking water. But also, like, spitting is a very normal thing. We need to normalize it if you're in a wine education setting. Totally cool. Can you share a few wines from Napa that are excellent values for $75 or less? Of course I can. I would love to share a few wines. I think one of which is not going to surprise you, which is our NDA wines. Um, I've talked about these wines before. We've actually done a whole podcast episode on them. NDA wines are an amazing way to go if you're looking, especially for Napa. I think we just reported a couple of weeks ago that the average price of a Napa Valley 
Cabernet or maybe just a wine is $108 now. So $75 is still uh, a value in Napa Valley. So the NDA wines are those white labeled wines that you can find on Wine Access. We've offered some in the club. Some examples of, of that would have been the Halpin, the Dust of Glory. You have Yesterday. Radio Silence was a great NDA wine. And these are wines that are coming from vineyards or wineries that you know, for whatever reason, are in need of selling their juice. And when they do that, the purchaser has to, of course, sign an NDA saying that they won't disclose the source of that fruit or of that juice. In this case, when it comes to wine access, they are working with some really great wineries that they have alluded to. And the quality of wines that they're putting out under these NDA wine labels are incredible. I, I can't say enough good things about them. So I would definitely start there. But in terms of like actual wineries, I think one that I have to call out is Hoops in Oakville. This is a, a wine that we see offered on Wine Access a lot. I know Joe Fish really loves Hoops, as do I. Um, this is a generational family-owned winery that I think still makes an incredible, great Oakville Cabernet. Another one I have to mention is Claude Duval, a classic winery that is still putting out incredible entry-level Napa Valley Cabernets that I think are sitting in that like 60-ish dollar range. And then, you know, you still have really great ones coming from from Frank family. I think the Frank family Cabernet is still like a really solid $60, $70 buy. So there's still some really good ones out there and you just kind of have to know where to look. And I will say that if you go to Wine Access, you can always filter by Cabernet, by region, and then also by price. And they're really good about having some great values. Oh, the other one I wanted to mention was Teeter Totter. That's another one that you usually find. That's from Benoit Duquette. That's usually under that $75 mark. Question number three, how long should I age my Beaujolais Nouveau? Well, I think we sort of covered this already, but if I wasn't clear before, Beaujolais Nouveau is of course the wine that you're not going to age. And I'm talking like months, like this is not a wine that is going to do anything but get worse over the course of time. Uh, so Beaujolais Nouveau, no life on that. When it comes to Cru Beaujolais, which is what we're drinking tonight, I will say that I've had some really delicious Cru Beaujolais, specifically from one of the other great producers, Marcel Lapierre. I've actually had those wines with about eight to 10 years of age, and they were still drinking really beautifully. So a good quality Cru Beaujolais can actually do really well with time, but I wouldn't go more than 10 years for that. Um, and then as far as Beaujolais and Beaujolais Volage, again, I think, you know, somewhere in between that, they're just really wines that are just meant to be drunk young. I mean, I'm in a sweatshirt tonight for a reason, right? These are, Beaujolais is a wine that is meant to be relaxed with, hang, hung out with, right? It's your Scandal and Netflix wine. It's your wine that you're ordering takeout from and enjoying it with, and a wine that is I think made in a really serious way, but not meant to be taken too seriously, if that makes sense. All right. Question number four. This is kind of funny that somebody had asked me. Best wine at Total Wine under $30. Well, this is the Wine Access podcast, so we're not going to talk about Total Wine. But what we will talk about are some of the great values that Wine Access has. And I think specifically in some of the shipments that we've had in the past, Rioja is a really great place to look. There's always some great values there. One of my favorites that occasionally makes an appearance is the Zuccardi Tarantes, uh, an amazing white wine that is delicious with sushi and usually around $10 to $15 a bottle. And then because it is the holiday season and we're getting into bubbles territory, I have to give a shout out to my favorite like $12 cava, the Messias Salat. 
it's amazing. It's like $12 and it's perfect for like all things celebration when you don't want to drink actual champagne. The Langlois Cremant de Loire is also amazing. This is the Boulanger uh, project that they have down in the Loire Valley. And this is a sparkling wine that they're making that is under $30. The price has gone up a little bit in the last few years, but it's still under $30. So again, I think, you know, everyone's always looking for great sparkling wines. And those are two that are available on Wine Access, but you can usually find them fairly easily as well. As well as the Zuccardi. We love the Zuccardi. All right. Question number five. I like this question. Thinking about a wine trip to France for our honeymoon, where to spend a week? I have a few ideas on this, and I think if you're thinking of a wine vacation, we have done a few different episodes on different regions, namely uh, Tuscany being one of them with Filippo Bartolotta, where we've talked about, obviously it's not France, that's Italy, but we talked about lots of different places to go. We talked about the Loire Valley, we talked about Bordeaux, we've talked about um, Spain with Eduardo and Laura. But when we're talking about France, I think the two that I have to call out, which conveniently we have done episodes on, are both Loire Valley and Bordeaux. And I, I say those for two different reasons. I think the Loire Valley is just so beautiful, right? You've got picturesque river kind of flowing through that, all of the castles dotting each of the, the sides of the river. The food is so good. It's so fresh. It's so beautiful. And then, of course, the wines are just so easy to drink. So I think, you know, if I'm thinking about a really romantic getaway, like that just screams romance and ease and and, you know, the wines go with the food and the cheese and like everything just feels so lovely and lively and fresh. So I'm thinking about, you know, a couple of things. It's your honeymoon. The other region that I would have to say is Bordeaux. You know, I think there's ways to do Bordeaux that are not, you know, this. I think it, we had talked about this on the podcast that I did with Aaron Pott. On the left bank of Bordeaux, it does tend to be a little bit more serious and it does tend to be a little bit more of that like, you know, it feels a little more formal, but if you go to the right side, if you go to the right bank of Bordeaux in like Saint-Emilion, uh, and then if you go down further south, you know, near like the Pessac and in, in Grave, I think those are regions that are a little bit more relaxed. And I always have to call out the fact that there is uh, near the Smith Oat Lafitte property, there is Caudalie, which is a spa and a hotel. So I think if you're thinking of a, a wine spa getaway, that would be a perfect place to go. So those would be my choices if I were going to France on your honeymoon. I know champagne is sort of an obvious one, but I always like to remind people how cold champagne is. It's a it's a cold region, like even in the summer months. It's gray, it's cloudy, you know, it's bubbles, but like I don't know. You may not you may not like it as much as you think you would like it. I'm just gonna put that out there. Number six, I'm new to wine. This is a great question. I really love this question. I'm new to wine with all the options at the grocery stores. How can I tell which ones are good or not? Oof, I know it's hard. You know, obviously this is, as I mentioned, the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast. So we always, you know, recommend you buy from the trusted source. But we also know that, you know, sometimes you just got to grab a bottle. It's all good. And, you know, how do you know any wine is good? How do you know if you're anywhere, not just the grocery store or somewhere else, that any wine is good other than when you're shopping at Wine Access and you know that it's good? I think one of the first things that I'm looking for is place specificity. And what I mean by that is when I am looking at the label of a bottle, I'm and I'm between two or I'm between three or I'm between four, I'm looking to see which has the most specific location, meaning does it just say California or does it say 
Sonoma Coast? Does it say Central Coast or does it say Paso Robles? And I think the more specific that you can get with the label, the more likely the quality is to be higher. So if you see something that even has like a single vineyard or a special block, that usually means it's something really special. That's not to say that your wider appellated wines are bad by any means, but that's just usually a good rule of thumb to me when I'm looking for quality because the better quality wines are going to come from more specific places because they're more expensive to make. And so they're not going to put out a bad quality wine and charge, charge more for it if it's, you know, and, and have, and take the time to have it come from that specific place. Kitschy labels are also kind of a weird department. I, you know, I think sometimes like we do see some good wines with kitschy labels, but you know, anytime you see something that's just like a little like too cutesy or whatever like sometimes they're good sometimes you get some good wines there but I would say by and large like that's usually a bit of a red flag um anything barrel bourbon barrel aged is usually a red flag for me like anything that's like special like bourbon like barrel aged is kind of a weird one like we really just want to stick to the classics there's very few examples of wines that are made in a way that's uh, outside of that, that outside of your new French oak or American oak or Slavonian oak that are actually any good. So those are three options for you. And then number seven, most underrated wine. You know, at some point I would have said Beaujolais still, and I think a lot of ways Beaujolais is still very underrated. I think the fact that we're getting really high quality wines at this price is, you know, it's still kind of amazing, but I will just mention that we actually did a whole episode, me, Eduardo and Laura on like great wine buys from iconic regions. And even within our very expensive regions like that of Burgundy and Tuscany and Piedmont, there are some amazing, amazing wines that you can get, namely like Dolcetto from the Piedmont region. I think the wines of Sicily are still really undervalued. And in fact, there is a Sicilian wine in this wine club shipment that I think, you know, definitely is a little bit more, not on the pricey side, but I think still a very underrated region. Um, and that's where I'm going to be sort of talking about. I think Spain, obviously, you know, we know Spain is a great, you know, value region. And then of course, the Loire Valley, for whatever reason, in France, I think they're making some of the most high-quality wines out there, and they still just, you know, they're not that expensive. It's hard to spend money in the Loire Valley. All right, let me see if we got any questions. Am I weird in that I really don't like to decant my Napa cabs, even the young ones in Tannic Vintages like 18, because with long decants, I feel like the wine loses its vibrancy. That is a great question. Thank you for the question. Um, no, you're not weird. Uh, and I will just say categorically, like whatever you choose to do with your wine is what you choose to do. But I will say you're not weird because I actually, I think everyone who's been listening to this podcast knows I am very very conservative when it comes to decanting because it does change the wine a lot and there is no reverse button and once you put that wine in a decanter once you start opening it up you're you're really you're forcing the wine to change uh, maybe forcing it to change not necessarily for the better in terms of like losing its vibrancy you know I don't know if that's the specific reaction that I have but I do notice that like with especially with young wines if you decant them for too long, they do get like a little discombobulated. You know, I do, we found that a lot with press that like these young wines, they don't necessarily want a ton of time. They haven't had the time to mature and like sort of, you know, it's a weird thing to say, but almost like stick together. You know, it feels like in their youth, it's like you've just, 
you've just forced them into doing something that they don't want to do and they weren't ready to do yet. So by decanting and you know trying to soften those tannins, I think you lose a lot in the process. So it's a great question. I always love questions on decanting. I think going back to this wine, as we uh, wrap up our live episode, I think one thing I want to mention is that this wine just continues to improve in the glass and continues to get more vibrant. So if you're not noticing that, even after this wine's been open for a few days, Gosh, it's so crazy. You know, this like juxtaposition of this like really fruitiness and then this like this sort of dark brambly undertone. And, you know, I think one thing that I didn't mention that is notable about Bruy is the soil here, right? This is a soil that sort of lends itself to, you know, to having like a, a sort of rusticity. This is a place that, you know, if you think about what all of the different crews offer, for me, Bruy is a little bit more dark and brooding. And funny enough, I think like if you look at the other crews like Fleury, like a little soft and floral, like they, the, the names sort of like embody what they are. As I mentioned, if you are drinking this wine right now and you want more of this wine for Thanksgiving, that is a great idea. This should be your turkey wine. And if you want a white wine for Thanksgiving, highly recommend that S Estes Sudero that's also in the shipment for, for this next uh, four episodes. You guys, this is always so much fun to do. Thank you so much for those of you who came out and joined me live. I always love doing this. It's a pleasure. And um, if you have more questions, you're always welcome to DM us on Instagram at WineAccessUnfiltered. You can always DM me personally as well at Vivant. And you are always welcome to leave us a review on this show. We always appreciate it. So thank you so much. Cheers. I hope you're all enjoying the first fall moments, getting ready for the holidays. And I hope these wines help you through it. See you later. Mm-hmm.